much of the scripture we're going to be looking at this morning because it is the first commandment. You know, sometimes ago someone asked me about my sermon prep and and uh, etc., which I know has a lot to be desired. Um, and uh, I explained to them, well, I generally go about it um, by reading the text first, of course. And um, that's what I have to do. And I look at its context and, and then I would look at different translations to see how it's all put out by other people, etc. And uh, then with the help of some original tools, language tools, I will look at different words in that given text and see how they interact with the text that I'm looking at. And, um, and after all that is done, there's a possible outline formed, very roughly. The outline changes. It's always not there as I first write it. And then after rereading the text numbers of times, I go to different commentaries in order to keep me honest and uh, to the text. And uh, so all in all, what I do, as I've some, I think I might have said before, I, I do as someone else said in regards to sermon prep, I milk many cows but I churn my own butter. And, and I say this because uh, the messages that I'm bringing you, and particularly from the Ten Commandments because they're not the easiest of texts, I do acknowledge the help from other men who are more scholarly than me and more godly. And so I acknowledge them and their help. But I do a lot of churning on my own. And so with God's help, we can uh, look at this one commandment found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And may God add a blessing to that wonderful word from God. You know, after our introduction last Sunday to our series on the Ten Commandments, what I want to do this morning, before we begin to look at these ten words from God, because that's what they are, they're called the Ten Words from God, they're recorded in verses 3 right through to 17 of this chapter 20. And, um, and of course, as you know, these commandments were written on tables of stone, which someone has kindly put a... Um, I'll find out who that was. I love it. It's quite cute, as my wife said. Uh, they were written on tables of stone. And on the first table, we have four commandments revealing our duty to God. The last six commandments on the second table reveals our duty to one another or our duty to mankind. But before we begin our study, it's important to keep in mind how we saw last week as we launched this uh, series in chapter 19 that the grace of God, God's redeeming grace, is the background and context which his law springs from. We must always keep that in mind. Because not only is this made clear in chapter 19, especially in verses 4 to 6, we have it again here reiterated in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. And this is what verses 1 and 2 says. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. How many times do you hear that all the way through? Not only in the book of Exodus, but 
in the whole of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, because that is regarding Israel primarily. We hear it over and over again. And here, so closely associated with chapter 19, it's as if God is making a repeated emphasis so that the readers and the people of Israel would not miss this vital truth. God's grace precedes his law. And this is what he reminds Israel. He has already, by his sovereign grace and power, has redeemed Israel out of bondage. And we know that story well. He's redeemed them out of slavery, out of the Egyptians' uh, uh, bondage. And now he will instruct them how to be living sacrifices, can we say, in their lives as they worship the Lord as his priests because they are his possession and they are to do and live all do this for his glory. And this is what we have in chapters 20 right through to actually end of 24 of this book of Exodus. You see, these people can now be what God wanted them to be, worshippers. And that is exactly what these ten words or these ten commandments from God are. They are not, and I say it again, they are not a list of rules that can earn God's favour if someone keeps them. They are God's perfect standard for his already redeemed people to live out in responsive, thankful and worshipful praise to the God and Father of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's what they're there for. So if you're an unbeliever here today, if you're not too sure about all this Bible stuff and Christian stuff, and, and maybe you can't even be a religious person of some persuasion, but if you're an unbeliever, a person who does not personally believe in Jesus Christ, don't ever think the Ten Commandments are God's pass or fail test for you, because that's not it. You got that? The past test, if we can call it that, has already been victoriously completed by Jesus Christ. He alone is the only one that could ever pass God's past test, as it were, because he is perfect, righteous and sinless. And yet this perfect and righteous, sinless man, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, died taking upon himself your and my sin, and bearing the penalty of God's wrath for your and my sin, so that we as individuals, many here today, might be freed from the bondage of sin and slavery that Satan puts us in by nature, so that we can rejoice in the Lord, so that we can rise up to individually and as a group this morning and praise the Lord from our hearts, knowing that we have been redeemed. So please understand this vital truth. God's grace and salvation comes before his law because his law is for living holy lives to please him. So this means, and just let me end with this at this stage, no matter how good anyone may be, no matter how good you think you may be, if you have not accepted God's grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, as recorded in the scripture alone, all your good living and religious efforts are a total waste of time. You got that? That's pretty blunt, but you know, that's what the gospel is. And so many religions today, they will put 
the doing stuff before the receiving and the believing. And they get it all back to front. So God's grace in Christ comes first and must be accepted before his law. And so with that made clear, let us look at this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. We see that in verse 3. Now before I go any further, I want to give an overall purpose statement. Okay, a purpose statement. I kind of chopped and changed this around and, and, uh, and, and I finally came up with this and you probably would come up with a better one, a purpose statement for the text. I don't always do this, I do it sometimes. Sometimes I do it but I don't mention it because it just keeps me honest with the text. But this is what I have come up with for the purpose statement for this text. We are called to love and worship the one true God with lives that are completely loyal and undivided toward him alone. That's our purpose statement. Basically, if you looked at that and took it to heart, I could probably leave right now. But we need to preach the word and so we'll carry on. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, this commandment is so well known, every one of us here will already know it and could quote it without even looking at their Bibles. That actually can be a problem because in our familiarity, we forget the import of it. And also another thing that we can do is we, because it's such an historically charged commandment, as all of them are, we allow those historical roots to cloud its importance and relevancy for us today. We can easily treat it as, as, as if it's some ancient law of God and, and unintentionally maybe throw it in the historical bin, so to speak, thinking that this is only Jewish male. But let's be very clear, this is vital mail from God to the church today, to us here this morning, just as it was to ancient Israel. And the reason I say this is because, for example, Jesus himself obeyed and taught this during his earthly ministry over and over again. The first time he made mention of it was when he was tempted in the wilderness, remember? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus responded to Satan's temptation by saying that that it was not proper to worship anyone other than the Lord your God. That's what he told him, Satan. It's also quoted in in Matthew and Mark's Gospel where Jesus taught, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. In those Gospels. The New Testament writers such as the Apostle Paul and John they make reference to this over and over again. Folks, This is not something only for another era or another culture where literal idols and a plurality of deities are widespread. It's just not for them. This is a commandment that is relevant for all time and for the church today. You may say, well, I'm not an idolater. I'm not wishing other gods like Israel did in their day. And it is true. For those who know the Old Testament, Israel did struggle with idol worship, right? That was the bane of 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 their lives, of their history. But as we've already seen in Exodus 19, Israel was saved to worship the one and only true God alone, with no competitors. And folks, just as Israel, although redeemed by God from Egypt, and just as she still struggled with idolatry, the church today still has the same problem. Nothing new under the sun. 
We exist as believers to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we know that, but we still struggle with idolatry. And that is one reason why this first great word from God in his Ten Commands is so relevant for us today. For a better understanding this morning, what I want to do is, is divide this commandment into its negative and to its positive instruction as it is embedded in this text we have looked at. Because as we can see, it's a command that prohibits, right? It says that what we're not to do. Then it also is a command that requires something from us. That's in the positive effect. In other words, we are called to love and to worship the one true God with lives that are completely loyal and undivided toward him, as our purpose statement says. That's the positive side of it. The prohibition is seen in the emphatic word, no. Okay, And the use of that word no, in our English, yeah, we can say no, and it doesn't even necessarily mean no, but here in the Hebrew, the word, without bogging you down with all that, is an emphatic no. Matter of fact, you could more accurately translate this and you could say, you will not have any other gods before my face. That's what this text says. It is spoken by God with the highest expectation of obedience from his people. It's the same language, by the way, that God uses and commands that a marriage relationship is exclusively between a husband and wife. It's the same language that he uses here. In other words, you shall have no other wife, husband, and, and wife, you shall have no other husband. The two of you shall become one flesh, forsaking all others. Both husband and wife will have only, only eyes for one another. That's the strength of this no here. The exclusivity of it. This is why marriage covenant, by the way, is a covenant. Not merely a contract. Contracts can be broken. A covenant is seen by God as something that cannot be broken. And as we know, a covenant demands exclusive, undivided loyalty. And here in our text, the Lord's covenant of redeeming grace demands nothing less. It demands our exclusive, undivided loyalty. No other gods. So we might ask, what does this really mean to have no other gods before me? Now, that's a very important question because, as we've already said, Israel struggled with us. You think if there was, an, of all nations, Israel should have known what this meant. But they got lost, right? Everything else invaded them and over time, etc. They have stuff like culture as well, just like we do. It invaded them and they allowed it to overpower them. So what does it really mean? You see, when God says that you shall have no other gods before me or before my face, which is a literal meaning, before my face, you shall not bring them into my presence. He doesn't mean, you got that? He doesn't mean, I always kind of like to start off with a negative. That's just me. That's my wife. It doesn't mean I have got to be on the top of the pile. It doesn't mean... As long as I am first, that's what matters most. It doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean I must be a priority over all others. You got the picture? 
When he says you shall have no other gods before my face, what he does mean is you may not have other gods instead of me or alongside of me or in addition to me. That's what he means. In other words, God is saying, I will not tolerate anything you allow to compete with me. Okay? I will not allow anything to compete with me. Now, this is important, folks, because we live in an age of what we call syncretism, where tolerance and acceptance of all belief systems is regarded as virtuous. You're tracking with me on this. The age and cry for tolerance, especially religious people, and especially you Christians. And I might say we easily get caught up and blown along by these invasive competitors, I call them, for our exclusive loyalty to God alone. And yet there is one major truth about the character of God and the being of God that we often lose sight of in this command. You know that what that is? That God is a jealous God. We see that in verse 5, just a little bit down further in our text. God is a jealous God and repeated on numerous occasions through Scripture, describing something of the character of God. Now, you might not have thought of God being a jealous God. Now, don't get me wrong. We can be jealous, but that can be sinful because it's prideful, etc., and it's all about self. God has a right to be jealous. He's redeemed His people to be worshippers. And so, because of His redeemed people, they're His possession, and He is jealous for their loyalty, for their love, and for their undivided devotion. It means that He must alone receive our devoted worship. That's what it means. Now, when we take this apart a little further, there's a challenge that hits home to every one of us. It may be true that we do not bow down and religiously worship a shrine, or maybe you do, or or some relic of the past, as millions of people do, um, and and deny one the true God. And maybe you don't do that. But dare I say, having divided loyalties to the Lord, whom we love, is a problem that tempts and often succeeds in every one of us, myself included. How this works, and it won't be foreign to you, by the way. It won't be foreign to you. And here here how it goes down. We want to be Christians who have nothing in our lives that competes with our devotion toward the Lord, right? As believers, that's what we want, right? But what happens is, and what can happen, is that culture pulls at us so enticingly with its loves for things like money and pleasure and careers and status and even politics and and, and even personal relationship. This all happens, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these. As a matter of fact, some of these things are commendable. But the flesh loves those things. It really loves those things. The flesh is like a counterfeit worship. It can, it can even worship those things. It can spend, cause us to spend huge amounts of time on those sort of things and thinking about those things and wanting those things and desiring those things. It happens. 
You see, because when they rob God, when these very things rob God of the worship and glory and devotion that he demands, when these things, when they rob God by competing with our devotion and affections for the Lord, when they rob God by enticing us to have a foot in both camps, can we say, then these things become blatantly wrong and idolatrous. You got that? You will have no other gods before my face, the Lord says. You know, one of the most, I was thinking about this, in one of the most subtle ways of our devotion and loyalty and how that can become easily divided is bowing to what I made mention of before, the word tolerance. And this is wreaking havoc in the church today, I might say. And what I mean by this is if we begin to go soft and accept other belief systems as being just as true as God's truth, folks, we are in big trouble. When we bow to the idea of truth being something that can be manipulated by different cultures and worldview, truth is no longer absolute, right? And if we go down that trail, truth becomes something that shifts according to whatever one or a culture believes. Or a subculture or a sub-sub-subculture. The catch cry today is, what is truth for you is not truth for me. You've heard that hundreds of times. And when we get sucked into that philosophy, that worldview, that way of thinking in any particular area, you know what we do? even though it may be unintentional, when we get sucked into that, we redefine what truth is. And when we do that, we redefine who God is. Because absolute truth comes from and is who God is. God and His truth is not a shifting thing. God is the truth. And even Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. That's a definitive, the truth and the life. And he commands our undivided devotion based on what? Based on his revealed truth. But when we accept different stances on truth as being equally true, you know what? Tolerance becomes an idol before the face of God. And it robs the Lord of the full loyalty and devotion that he demands from us. So when we allow culture, our friends, our workplace or whatever it is, when we allow culture to shift God's truth on things like sex before marriage, adultery, homosexuality, divorce, euthanasia and a whole host of other culturally accepted sins, when we allow culture to shift our idea of truth on those things, what we are doing is allowing our liberal, loose ideas, our thinking, to have precedence and authority over the absolute truth of God. And folks, that is redefining who God is. We are saying truth is not exclusively God's. It's what we want and want it to be. Therefore, as someone has said, by doing that, we create a God in our own image. 
In other words, we have redefined God to be something that he is not. We have created a God to suit our own ideas on morality and ethics and conduct. So then our own ideas and thinking become competitors to the one true God. So many churches and Christians are guilty of this today. And when we redefine truth as in the scriptures, we redefine God himself and this is a blatant disloyalty and disobedience to this first command. God defines himself, right? We don't define him. And what he says is absolute truth. And folks, we dare not meddle with that. No matter what the circumstances, we dare not meddle with that. No matter what the pressure... No matter what the politicians say, no matter what culture says, just because everyone's doing it, we cannot, dare not redefine truth because it's a reflection on God himself. Any false view of God is a form of idolatry and those false ideas in the name of tolerance compete with the one and only true God of the Bible. And folks, God will have no other gods before his face what he says. Matthew Henry, as many of you will know this old theologian, he said a long time ago, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that is in effect an idol. Idols, dare I say, can be things that we may not even think of. Idols can be your marriage, idols can be your family, idols can be your happiness, your career, your friendship, your physical fitness, your children, your intellectual ability, or whatever else. They can be anything. As I said before, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves about these things, but whatever you love, desire, want, and strive for the most, that is your God. That is your God. Good to do some rain checks here, isn't it? But God says to his redeemed people and those delivered by his grace from the bondage of sin and wrath to come, you will have no other gods before my face. We are called to love and worship the one and true God with lives that are completely loyal and undivided toward him. Secondly, what we're going to do now is look briefly at the second part, the positive side of this, of this command. You see, as I said before, as this command prohibits, it also commands something from us. And our call is that we are to worship God and Him alone. Now, every true child of God is called in a life to be a loyal worshipper of the God who saved them. Simply put, put folks, we are saved. Okay? I love that word delivered or rescued. We have been rescued. We've been redeemed by God's grace and we've been delivered from the clutches of sin and death and hell. What for? In order to worship God. I wonder if you got that. That's our purpose. You want to put a purpose statement over your life. This is what it should be. I have redeemed to be a worshipper of the one true God of the Bible. Simple yet so easily and deceptively forgotten. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But the question can be, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we worship and enjoy 
and glorify God? How, how can we know the freedom that God gives us? How can we live in the enjoyment of that and, and, and know the blessing of God's salvation and life that God has given us? Well, according to Scripture, there are two ways. One is corporately that we worship Him, like when we gather together here, as we have done this morning and doing. And the other is personally. You want to know how to worship? Scripture speaks of two ways, corporately and individually. Moses, David and the apostles all describe these modes of worship, by the way. I love Psalm 100 that uh, Peter read out to us this morning. speaks of corporate worship. The psalmist calls us in Psalm 95, this is what he says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. This is a call to worship to the corporate people of God. Paul likewise in the New Testament instructs believers how to conduct themselves to give glory to God when gathered together. And actually he even describes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. You are the temple. The you there is not singular, it's in the plural. You, he's speaking to the assembly. You are the temple of the living God. Another word, when you're gathered together, God is amongst you. Peter himself. The apostle describes the worship community by saying, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5. Once again, the apostle Peter is describing a worshipping community as being a building, as being living stones, as being a holy priesthood, and ones who come together and offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Corporate worship. The writers of the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. We are to gather together to stimulate one another. How? To encourage one another and to love and good deeds, but not forsaking our own assembly together. Here is a form of worship in corporate, when we gather together corporately. When we gather together in corporate worship, we are to give to the Lord glory due to His name, as we have seen through a variety of ways. We have sung this morning. We have encouraged one another. And by the way, we need to really work on that if we're redeemed of the Lord, right? I kind of stay silent here, but I can't. I, I, I almost need Velma to put my hand on my knee to keep me down. Because you hear enough from me. When we're invited, surely as redeemed people, to encourage one another with how God has blessed us, well, there should be, everyone should be standing up. I wonder if you come together in your worship to the Lord to encourage others. That's what the writer of the Hebrews said, what we do. We're to encourage one another. You know, I just love people getting up and saying how the Lord has blessed them. It's an encouragement, right? I'm not being subjective here, but there's a fullness of heart. I just want to go, praise the Lord, and some of us do. So how come some of us are so quiet? Oh, you may be shy, but get over your shyness. Don't let that be an idol. Just a word of exhortation given in the grace of God. And so a variety of ways, and those a variety of ways of sharing and doing good to one another. And um, 
And how do we do that? That's why we have so much instructions in these ten words from God about our relationship with one another. I wonder if this is what corporate worship is like for you. Do you come along to give God glory and worship him through encouraging others? Or is there another agenda for your time spent with the saints? I'll leave that question with you. You see, this command calls us also not only to worship corporately, but it also calls us to worship him in every aspect of our lives. And I believe Paul encapsulates this idea of individual worship beautifully when he says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, and you'll know this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I love that, if that's not a statement that encapsulates everything in your life, from whether it's loving your wife or dealing, disciplining your kids or going to work or driving your car or going on a holiday or sitting down for a great meal together, no matter what, whatever you do, do it for all the glory of God. He emphasises this again in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, well-known verses. Therefore, the word therefore is owing to what has been said in the first 11 chapters. Owing to God's redeeming grace, the whole idea, and salvation, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as your reasonable service of worship. In other words, God does not want only your heart or your mind, folks. You got that? I don't like the idea of evangelists or preachers of the gospel getting up and praying, give your heart to the Lord. The Lord doesn't want your heart. He wants your heart, he wants your soul, he wants your mind, he wants your body, he wants everything of you. That's what Paul means here. He wants all of us. And this is what God said to Pharaoh, remember? He said the same kind of thing. Let my people go so that they might what? Worship me and serve me. I trust the Lord will impress as we've looked at this one small verse, his redeeming grace upon us all, because it all comes back to the cross, right? It all comes back to the wonderful Lord and, and his cross work and the benefits that have flown our way because of that. Trust the Lord will impress that upon us more so that we might heed in a greater depth this command that you shall have no other gods before me in order to love and worship the one true God with lives that are completely loyal and undivided to him. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks this morning. Lord, we cannot go past thanking you for the Lord Jesus. Because when we think of him, we think of your grace. When we think of him, we think of your mercy, your love and kindness. And so, Lord love that is beyond measure. Oh, Father, saturate us, fill our souls and our hearts with truth from yourself so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Oh, Father, those things that occupy us, Lord, nothing wrong in these things, and we thank you for our jobs, our families, our wives, and, and even those extra things that we don't need, but, Lord, you have given them to us. Help us to, Lord, not give them the affection and the time 
whereby it would rob you. And so, Lord, help us so that we will not bring gods before, other gods before your face. Wean us from this, we pray. We want to be people who are true worshippers. So, Father, with this, we just commit ourselves to you and pray your blessing upon us, each one, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I go, Bill is going to come before.